turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's, uh, before we turn to the word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time together when we get to open the scriptures again. And we thank you, Lord. It's exciting for us to feed on your word and to learn of you. We pray you bless this time to us, Lord. Pour your spirit upon us that we may understand, Lord, the the things that you have revealed for us in the pages of scripture. We thank you your word speaks. We pray it will speak to us personally and that each one may be ministered to somehow from this text today. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to the book of Daniel and chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And uh, this morning I'd like to read especially verses 1 to 15. Since the beginning of the year, we've been doing some sermons on uh, things to do with the end times and Bible prophecy. And this is uh, a good passage for us to know in that context as well. So Daniel chapter 7. Beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked. And there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, There before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white Like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. 
Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn, uh, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I bet he was. Well, please keep your Bible open there. <clears throat> in the year 2010, there was a, a concept film, as they like to call them, uh, come out, which was called Inception. And the idea of this film, just in a nutshell, is that uh, by using a special machine and wiring people up, people up, you could actually steal their dreams. You could take their dreams from them, which if a person was an entrepreneur, had good business ideas, things like that, you could download their dreams. But also you could do the other and you could put things into their minds as well. And uh, when this film came out, and it's a very complicated film, I have to say, to try and watch, but it's a, uh, it's a classic. Uh, when this film came out, one newspaper asked this question, are your dreams worth stealing? Well, I have to be honest with you, if it was my dreams, no, not unless you want comedy, uh, because uh, my dreams tend to be more of the ridiculous type, you know, where I'm running away from someone with a, a bowl of tripe or something like this, you know. And... Uh, it's uh, not my dreams that you want. But however, one person whose dreams would have been worth stealing was Daniel the prophet, as the Lord Jesus called him in Matthew twenty-four fifteen, Because his dreams were dreams of destiny. They were dreams of prophecy about the future. You see, Daniel was a captive of the Israelites in Babylon uh, in the years 605 to 536 BC. He'd been taken there with the people of Judah after their sins had brought the judgment of God on their nation and Babylon had come and conquered their city. And Daniel had been taken there in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And his book is about his experiences while he was there in Babylon. And basically, it's a very easy book to divide because you have two halves. Chapters 1 to 6, you have Daniel's life and the stories of his life, Daniel in the lion's den uh, and so on. But in chapters 7 to 12, you have Daniel's visions, the prophecies that he was given and visions that he was given uh, about the future. And here in Daniel chapter 7, we have his dream of world history from that point forward through to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he dates it from uh, 533 BC, which was the year of Belshazzar, because he says it's in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And he was the king, you remember, with the writing on the wall, the finger that wrote on the wall. He was that king. So this is going back to the days uh, before chapter 5, when he actually had this vision. 
but uh, he was given this vision of world history uh, showing the course of the time period we call the times of the Gentiles when there are different empires that are ruling the world which are not Jewish. That's what a Gentile is, a non-Jewish person, and especially with connection with Israel being under the dominion of Gentile authority. And uh, he had this vision of world history on that theme. And God was obviously showing him how things were going to unfold for his people in relation to the Gentile nations of the world. Now, I want us to look at this today because we're studying Bible prophecy. We're trying to understand what the Bible says about the future. Because this will be a foundation for us in our understanding of other prophecy. And it can be a foundation to us for the things in our lives as well with the lessons that we learn here. So I want you to see this passage this morning under three headings. I want you to see the course of world history, as Daniel saw it, the court of world history, and the conclusion of world history. First of all, the course of world history. You know, history can be recorded sometimes in ways that is uh, very prejudiced, can't it? In fact, Mark Twain said that the very ink with which history is written is merely fluid prejudice. But one of the beauties of this chapter is, of course, that we're free from all of that because it's divinely written. It's the inspired word of God and is without sin and error. So we know that the history we have foretold here is without any human prejudice. It's a prophecy giving us the course of world history uh, from God to man. And it starts off in verse 2, and Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. What he saw was a troubled sea, and it was being stirred by the four winds of heaven. The four winds come up again in Revelation chapter 7, and they seem to be some sort of, I'll call them apocalyptic powers that are troubling the world. And uh, he sees the sea, and it's not a nice, calm Lake of Galilee type of sea. It's a rough sea. It's furious. It's really disturbed. Now, this is all symbolic language of real things. When the Bible uses symbolism, it's not symbols of symbols. It's symbols of literal, real things. And the troubled sea in the Bible is a picture of the nations of the world in turmoil. There's many scriptures for this, but I'll give you just three. Okay, Isaiah 17 uh, and verse 12 says, Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. In Ezekiel 26 verse 3, God says to another nation, the nation of Tyre, which is today Lebanon, he says, I will bring many nations against you like the sea casting up its waves. And perhaps the clearest one is in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, which says, Then the angel said to me, as to John, The waters you see are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So consistently through the Bible, the picture of a troubled sea is a picture of the nations in turmoil. When you bear in mind that the the Bible, written from a Jewish perspective, the Jews were on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, they especially understood uh, what that meant for their Gentile neighbors. 
So this is how it begins. But what happens then is in verses 3 to 8, Daniel sees a parade of four beasts coming out of the sea. He sees a lion, he sees a bear, he sees a leopard, and in the shadows at the back there, he sees a fourth beast. He just calls it a beast. It's not a, a creature he knows. It's indescribable. And uh, this is a, a, a vision that we don't have to guess what this means because the key to understanding this passage is in the Bible itself. In verse 17, he's told this, the four great beasts you saw are four kingdoms. So that's what they are. They're pictures of four kingdoms, four Gentile empires that are going to come into the world. And actually what we've got here is something we can understand as well because we use animals, don't we, as pictures of nations. We talk about the British bulldog. And uh, in this older edition of The Economist magazine, you see a picture of the bulldog looking at the tiger and it's talking about the, uh, the business deals between China and Britain. Well, we can understand that at a glance by looking at that picture because those animals are symbols of nations. And this is what the Bible is doing here. And these four uh, beasts that come out are four Gentile empire kingdoms. And actually what we've got here is a repeat of chapter 2 because you might remember in chapter 2 King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream uh, of a huge statue made up of four or five parts to it. Uh, the, the fourth is, uh, is, is sort of in two stages really because it's, it's uh, a, a metal beast, a metal creature, a uh, man. And uh, he starts off with a head of gold, then it has arms uh, uh, and chest of silver, then it has belly and thighs of bronze, then it has iron legs, and finally the, the feet are iron mixed with clay. And this is the same vision given again in Daniel chapter 7. Now you might say to yourself, well why did God give the vision twice? I mean if he's already given it once and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, why do we need it twice? Well, two answers to that question. First of all, emphasis. God emphasizes things sometimes by giving them twice. This is what he did with Pharaoh, you remember, in the story in Exodus with the uh, plague, sorry, Genesis, with the the dreams Pharaoh had of the cows coming out of the sea and, the, uh, and out of the river and the uh, corn that grown up. And he had two dreams about the famine. And Genesis 41, verse 23, Joseph said to him that the reason is uh, that the dream was given in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. So the dream given twice is for emphasis. And that's why I believe in chapter 2 and in chapter 7, we have this same uh, display given in a prophetic dream. But also for perspective. Because you see, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he was seeing these empires from a human point of view. He saw them as dazzling. He was that head of gold. Babylon was his kingdom. It was glorious, beautiful, like gold. He saw the silver kingdom coming and uh, the bronze kingdom coming and iron right down to the weaker iron and clay at the end. And to him, that was a vision which he could connect with because he saw the glory. Is this not great Babylon which I have built? And it displayed it from man's perspective. Looks good. But the vision in chapter 7 is from heaven's perspective. And it's saying, it's not as good as you might think it is. 
These kingdoms are actually like ferocious beasts, dangerous predators, hunters, every single one of them. And he gives a different perspective on the view of world history. So that's why it's given twice. And what I want to do is, is go through this as we consider this first point of the course of world history and see each of these beasts and see which kingdoms they represent and what they teach us. So first of all, we have the Babylonian kingdom, which is, uh, corresponds to the, the head of gold. And in verse 4, Daniel is... Um, Uh, Sorry, I've turned over too many pages at once. In verse 4, Daniel says, The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. Now, the first kingdom is Babylon, and uh, it is pictured as a lion. You say, how do you know, though, that's Babylon? Again, this is symbolism that the Bible has already used. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 4, Jeremiah had a prophecy uh, about Babylon. In 4, verse 7 and verse 13, he said, a lion has come out of his lair, and he said his horses are swifter than eagles. Wings are a picture of speed. So the Bible is the best interpreter for us, and uh, we know, therefore, that this is speaking about Babylon, the head of gold in the other vision. And Babylon was a mighty empire, uh, which was a a, a resurrection of the Tower of Babel, but in a greater form under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, his father before him, and uh, the kings who followed after him. And this kingdom actually only lasted uh, until 539 BC. 625 to 539 BC. I'm afraid my eyes are getting weaker, so uh, (laughs) I'm going to have to uh, walk up and down to go and see it. But that was the first kingdom they saw. Okay, second kingdom they saw was the Medo-Persian Empire in verse 5. By the way, I didn't explain the wings being torn off the lion, um, but it does look like this is the, the kingdom coming to end and the glory being taken away from it. And what was once a mighty lion on all four is now stripped down to something smaller, which is uh, what happened with the defeat of Babylon. That's the best understanding I've got on that part of it. I haven't, I've got to be honest with you, there's more to the lion standing up on his feet than I fully understand. But the second kingdom is the Medo-Persian uh, empire, uh, an empire of really two nations that were formed together as one, the Medes and the Persians. And these are, are spoken of in verse 5 as a bear. He says, and there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Uh, it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Now, the kingdom that follows Babylon, as you remember from the story of the writing on the wall, is the Medo-Persian Empire. That night, uh, King Belshazzar fell, Babylon fell in a single night. And the Medes and the Persians came in and conquered. And their kingdom is pictured as a bear. It's a lopsided bear. And the reason for this is, although the Medes were involved, the Persians were the more powerful, bigger army. And it's an amazingly powerful description, really, of that army because uh, they really overcame nations by sheer wealth of numbers. 
This was their thing. It was, it was massive numbers by which they won their wars. And uh, it was a lopsided bear then, leaning more towards Persia than Media. And the main man in this kingdom was King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, uh, buried at Persopolis in uh, Iran. But you'll notice it's, it's eating three ribs, and it's told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. I hope you know, that'll be me this afternoon uh, when, we, when we go home for lunch. But uh, he's eating these three ribs. Now, what do these three ribs symbolize? Well, before um, uh, Medo-Persia became the world empire, it had three great victories. It conquered Lydia, uh, and it co- a place down in Africa, a place called Babylon, which is where Daniel was, of course, and Egypt. And uh, one after another fell to the mighty army of uh, of the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire. And their empire lasted until 330 BC. That brings us then to the third empire, and this one I, I find fascinating. He says, after that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, in verse 6. He says, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now, this third kingdom is the kingdom that followed the Medes and the Persians, and it is the kingdom of Greece. And it was led especially by Alexander the Great, the the great military leader. And he conquered, not by numbers against Mede or Persia, but he conquered by speed. Hence the fact that the beast is described as a leopard, the fastest land animal. And he, by sheer speed, went marching in. He would march his army through the night, and they would go and suddenly take a city, take a country. And uh, by sheer surprise, he would, he would come upon nations and conquer them. And so this, this leopard, and it's got four wings, emphasizing the fact that it's given extra power and speed, uh, is a picture of the Greek empire, the Hellenistic Greek empire that was to follow. And this was the empire through uh, which most of the intertestamental period of the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament happened. But you notice it's got four heads to this leopard. You say, well, why has it got four heads? Well, this is fascinating. This is, this is one of the amazing fulfillments of prophecy. Because, you see, when Alexander the Great died, uh, on his deathbed, they asked him, who, who do you leave your kingdom to? Because he, he had no son and heir. He said, who do you leave your kingdom to? And mischievously, he said, I leave it to the strong. (laughs) So what happened was his four top generals fought out for the kingdom. And in the end, it was divided between the four of them. And uh, the book of Daniel, especially chapter 11, deals with this. And it deals with the northern and south, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and how they fought against each other and there was rivalry between them as Alexander's kingdom was divided up, just like the four heads. And his kingdom started uh, in 330 and lasted all the way to 63 BC. And that was then succeeded by the fourth kingdom, which is, of course, Rome. 
And this is spoken of in verse 7 as a beast. And what we have here is a description of a, of a beast which is different to the others. He says, after that in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. Now, you notice here the iron teeth. This is uh, mixing now metal in with animals. He hasn't been to the dentist and had his teeth capped. Uh, But what it is, it's connecting with Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the legs of iron. It was the Roman Empire. And it's talking about the sheer strength, not the glory like the gold of Babylon, but the sheer strength of Rome. And these teeth on this uh, are very powerful for devouring. And he says it's terrifying and frightening how it was behaving. And he said it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. And that's just how the Roman Empire conquered the world. March in, conquer, take over. That's exactly what happened. And he said it was different from all the former beasts And it had ten horns. Now this is where the vision gets a bit tricky. Because there's no time. A horn in the Bible, as we've talked about before, is a picture of a king or a ruler. And a king is likened to a horn. It's the concentrated point on an animal. You think of a rhinoceros. When he charges, he's he's attacking you with with that concentrated point of his horn. Because that's where it's all in uh, one uh, focus point. And the focus point is in the leader. And this empire has ten horns. Not after each other, but all at once. Now, there's no point in history where Rome was ruled over by ten Caesars at once. So we know at this point something strange is happening. And it corresponds to the ten toes on the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, image in chapter 2. And what we have here is where the, the, the picture is now turning to future. Because the fascinating thing about the Bible is the Bible sees the time we are in now as a parenthesis. We're in what's called the church age. And the church age was a mystery in the Old Testament. And Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, it had been revealed to him, this mystery. And the church, it's almost as if God put a stop on the clock for the history of the church. And then when the church is taken away back to glory, he lifts his finger off and the clock runs again. And what we're going to have again in the future, as we talked about on Sunday night as well, is actually a revival of the Roman Empire. Now, I don't mean lots of people walking around in tin hats and spears and sandals. But what I mean is politically the Roman Empire. And it's interesting, we have groups in the world today, like the Club of Rome, the Treaty of Rome, and so on, and the European movement, it's basically the Roman Empire being revived. Now, you said, John, last week you talked about Babylon being revived. I did. These both are coming back in the future. The difference is that this is the one from which things come. The Babylonian one will rise up uh, after it. But we'll we'll talk about that more another day. Babylon at this point is not in focus. It's it's the Roman Empire coming back. And he sees out of these ten kings, one in particular in verse 8, called the little horn. 
In verse 8 he says, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And at this point, Daniel is telling us that this kingdom is going to be the kingdom from which the Antichrist is going to come. He is the man who's going to rise out of the Roman Empire, and he is going to be the leader, the last Caesar, if you can put it like that, who will rule the world. If you look down uh, in verse 24, it says the ten horns are ten kings who will come after this kingdom come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. And uh, we talked about that before, that that phrase is for a three and a half year period. But it is telling us the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to be one of those ten kings who comes up immediately among them, but he's actually going to overthrow three of them. He's going to defeat in battle three of them and the other seven are going to say, okay, you're the boss, you're the boss, we all do what you say, we get the message. And this man becomes then the ruler of the whole world, the little horn. This is Bible prophecy uh, revealing what is ahead in the course of world history. Now, what's fascinating is uh, in 1973, the Club of Rome actually divided the world up into 10 economic subdivisions, saying, you know, we should have 10 kingdoms in uh, the world that we use economically. And uh, I'm not saying that is it. But it's interesting to see how this idea has been in the, court, in the minds of men, even in modern history, as we would expect if the Bible is true. So this is the final kingdom. And, of course, it lasts from 65 through to the present uh, and into the future when the Lord Jesus will come back. Interesting, Caesars have been called... We've, we've never got away from the phrase Caesar, have we, for a ruler? We call our leaders czars. What is the word czar? T-S-A-R. It's the word Caesar. What's the word Kaiser? It's the word Caesar. We're still harping back all the time back to the Roman Emperor. What, what do the, the Americans call their, their, their government? They call it the Senate. You know, this is still in our blood, the Roman Empire. And one day it's going to revive again. Now... The fascinating thing about this is, we've just read this from the book of Daniel. In the book of Revelation, there's another man who has a vision whose name is John the Apostle. And John the Apostle said he was standing on the edge of the sea. And he said, as I saw, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea that had ten horns and seven heads. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and mouth like that of a lion. This is John's vision of the Antichrist and his kingdom in the future. And John draws it all out of Daniel chapter 7. He says, this, what you saw back there in chapter 7, that's coming back. That's coming back in the future. 
And he said, I saw a beast coming out. It had ten horns. Well, we just seen there were ten horns on that last beast. It had seven heads. If you add up the, three, the four heads on the leopard and the other three heads on the other beast, it's seven heads. But this is like all of it all in one now under the leadership of the Antichrist. And it's called, he said, the beast I saw, the term beast, was like a leopard, bear, like a lion. It's the same animals, only it's in reverse order. Why is it in reverse order? Because John is looking back uh, on those things, whereas Daniel was looking forward. But he's saying all these kingdoms are going to come together under one head in the future in the Antichrist. And this is, this is the course of world history that scripture reveals. It's an amazing thing that the Bible is precise in this way about history. And it's led people to see that the Bible is true. This gentleman here is Sir Walter Fight. Uh, he's a South African and he's no dummy. He held the chair for zoology at Western Cape, South Africa. Uh, he has BSc, MSc, PhDs etc. after his name. More, more letters after his name than spaghetti soup. And uh, he became a Christian and his testimony was in the Creation magazine some years ago. And they asked him, tell us, how did you become a Christian? You know, it's not often you find somebody uh, of this exalted position in, in academia who's uh, a Christian. And he said, it's a long story, but I was an evolutionist and an atheist. I started to get interested in the subject of biblical prophecy. For example, prophecies in the book of Daniel. They were written long before the events portrayed there. And the kingdoms came in succession, just as it says. And the Dead Sea Scrolls seemed to confirm the authenticity and antiquity of the book of Daniel. So I started to get interested in the rest of scripture, including Genesis. And one thing led to another. And it came to his conversion. But what a powerful testimony that is uh, to the message that Daniel was given, the course of world history. It reveals, oh look, I forgot to put the quote up. Uh, it reveals uh, what uh, actually happened, as we know. And it's been a testimony to others. Second thing we see here is the court of world history uh, in verses 8 through to 11. Because at this point, the vision shifts from earth to heaven. And Daniel says in verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like full, like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now, at this point, you may be forgiven for thinking uh, that everything has now got out of control with Daniel's vision. But actually, no, what Daniel is saying is things aren't falling, into, uh, aren't falling apart, they're falling into place. And God is getting ready to bring in his kingdom. And he is getting ready to judge the kingdoms of the world. And what we have here is an awesome vision in heaven of our great God and the Lord Jesus Christ coming to receive his kingdom. 
The division of our God is given in verse 9 as the Ancient of Days. That's one of his glorious titles. Now, it doesn't mean that God is old. It means he's eternal. All right? That's one of the things you've got to remember about our God. Uh, People say, well, who made God? If God made the world, who made God? The answer is God doesn't have a maker. He's eternal. He's the Ancient of Days. From everlasting to everlasting, uh, said the psalmist, is our God. He was and is and is to come, says the book of Revelation. And so he, the Ancient of Days, takes his seat at the throne. Uh, His clothing is as white as snow. White in the Bible is a symbol of purity. And of course our God is pure and holy. His hair, the hair of his head is white like wool. Now, that's not saying God is an old man, and I despise it when people call God the old man upstairs. Sorry, Dave, didn't mean to look at you at that point. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the white hair here is, again, a picture of his maturity, his, his strength, uh, uh, and his purity of character. And age is something that is uh, recognized and honored in the Bible. Um, he is the one who's qualified to judge because he's the creator and he's the eternal one. And his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Now, we don't tend to think of a throne having wheels. And people get all sorts of strange ideas in their mind about what they're looking at here. And they get the idea it's perhaps some sort of wheelchair. It's not a wheelchair. What Daniel saw here is the same as what Ezekiel saw in the first chapter of his book. And it's called the Merkava. The Merkava is the chariot. It's the word they use actually today in Hebrew for a tank. But it means the chariot, the throne chariot of God. And Ezekiel, by the river Kibar, you remember, says he saw uh, a throne and it had wheels within wheels underneath it. Now, the wheel, that's not UFOs, okay? I remember reading that as a kid, thinking that was a description of UFOs. It's not. Wheels within wheels are the wheels on the chariot. And it can go left and right. And this is what he sees the angels doing. They're moving left and they're moving right. They can go any direction. And the angels underneath, the four cherubim underneath, are holding this up and it's full of glory. All around, And it's saying God is moving in glory to judgment. Well, this is what uh, Daniel sees as well. And he sees this throne in such beautiful glory. And the river of fire coming from it is, is, is like God's judgment coming uh, in the future. And thousands upon thousands attending him are the angels and the believers with him. And we're told the court was seated and the books were opened at the end of verse 10. Now, what are these books? This is the great library of history where God has recorded every act of man and recorded everything you and I have ever said. I said it before, I'll say it again. I don't know if you keep a diary, but God does. And he's got everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done written. And that's why we need a saviour, because one day we're going to have to account for all that unless we know Christ as our saviour and lord. And he's paid for our sins. But this is what he has, the books open before him, the books of history of all these nations. And then in verse 11, Daniel says, I continue to watch because of the boastful words of the horn that he was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. That little horn, that final beast, the Antichrist and his kingdom is going to be destroyed one day. And the Antichrist himself is going to be defeated. Now, how's it going to happen? 
The other kingdoms are allowed to continue to a degree in verse 12, but in verse 13, he tells us how. He says, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Have you heard that somewhere before? Isn't that the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in his trial to the Sanhedrin? You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And uh, it's a description of him coming at his second coming. But he, at this stage, is coming towards God, not coming away from God. And it says, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He comes into the court. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what we have here is the court, and uh, in the court we have here the, the son coming to take the kingdom. Now I've got my points muddled and I've gone ahead of myself. But I want to make this point here, that the Lord Jesus Christ is presented here as the answer to the beast. He's the one who's the answer to the devil and his workings on earth. And that's why we need to know Christ personally as our saviour. You know, years ago, there was a, a chess master called Paul Morphy. And uh, when he had a night off, he liked nothing better than to take a night off. And uh, he was a chess genius. And he was one day invited, in the 1800s, he was one day invited to this house. I think it was in Switzerland. And it was a, a guest dinner party, and it was quite a posh affair. And, you know, he was a bit more quiet than everybody else. But he noticed above the mantelpiece a huge painting of a chess game. And, of course, this aroused his interest. And he went and had a look at it. And the chess game was between a young man and none other than the devil himself. And he got the idea that what he was saying was, in this picture, is that the young man was playing against the devil for his soul. And he looked at the chessboard, and the chessboard was checkmate to the devil. And the young man is sitting there analysing the board frantically. You can see the anxiety and fret on his face. You see the sweat dripping down him as he realises he's cornered. And uh, what can he do in this situation? And basically, the picture was saying, it's checkmate to the devil. He's got you. He's got you. And Paul Morphy, not interested in the party, just stood there. And he studied that picture. And he studied that picture. And he studied that picture. And suddenly, he cried out at the top of his voice, I've got it! And everybody turned around. And they said, what have you got? He said, if he makes one move, he's set free, and he becomes the winner. And he showed what that move would be. You know what, dear friends? I love that story, because there's one move you can make, and you can be set free from the devil, from his kingdoms, and you can be safe in Christ. And that's turning to the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for you. If you put your trust in him today, who died on the cross for you, you'll be set free from the devil and his power and his plans. And you'll be safe for all eternity. That's what we need to do. And our great God has sent his son to be the deliverer from the devil and his plans. The final thing we see here is the conclusion of world history, where the son gets the kingdom and receives 
the power and the glory from his father. He approaches the throne and he's given, in verse 14, authority, glory and sovereign power. Now this pictures the son being given the kingdom which he's going to come back and reign with on the earth. Sometimes people say, well, why did Jesus go back to heaven after he rose from the dead? Why didn't we just have the day of judgment? Why didn't we just end the history there? Why did Jesus go back to heaven? The answer in his own words is he was going back to get a kingdom. In Luke 19, verse 12, in one of his parables, he said this, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. And then he tells the story of the the men who are left in charge of his goods and how they are accountable for what they do for it. But you see, what Christ is saying about himself in that part of the parable is, I'm going to go back to heaven and I'm going to receive a kingdom. I'm going to receive the authority for the kingdom and then I'm going to come back and reign. That's why the Lord Jesus has gone to heaven. You find the same thing in Psalm 2, prophetically spoken. God the Father says to the Son, ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The kingdoms are going to be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the conclusion of the vision that we see here. And when Christ comes back, we're told here that all nations, men and of every language, will worship him. They will all kneel before him and own him as king. And those who know him as saviour will be so glad that he is their Lord and their saviour who has delivered them. And this is the, uh, the, the kingdom that he then brings in on the earth, which he says is a dominion, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is the one that will not be destroyed at the end of verse 14. Contrary to the other kingdoms, which each one fell to the next one after it, this kingdom will have no successor. Because the Lord Jesus is never going to come down off the throne and he's never going to lose his power and his glory. He's going to reign forever. And his kingdom will begin on earth for a thousand years as we read in Revelation chapter 20 and continue into eternity. And I want to say this, dear friends, that's the conclusion of world history. As uh, we often say, history is his story. And it's all leading up to the return of Jesus Christ and his return. This is where history is going, as Daniel revealed it. We need to remember that as we watch the things happening in the newspapers. We hear the news reports about what's going on in the world. There is a definite plan. And God's plan is to put his son on the throne. And each one of us needs to know him as our king and our lord and our saviour. In 1943, Sir Anthony Eden was answering questions in the House of Commons about the war effort and the uh, the difficulties that there were. And people were saying, what about this? And what about that? And they were throwing out accusations uh, at this point. And do you know what he answered in the words of a poem? He said, be silent, my soul, and be an onlooker, because the play has not yet finished. The play has not yet finished. And he said the the last line of that that poem is that the last act is the crowning act. So he said, don't judge the play by what is happening now. Wait until the last act. And that's what you and I have got to remember when we see the world history. God hasn't lost control. God is in control. But he's letting man have his day. And he has his plan to bring his son 
to the throne. The question is, are you and I going to be ready for him when he comes? You know, the only place you can buy time is on a parking meter. You can't buy time in this world any other way. And that's why now, urgently, you need to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him if you've not yet done so. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, we'll leave that there.